Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're going back in time with Cornelius and Zira in Don Taylor's 1971 dastardly human follow-up, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. This is Dr. Zira, her loving husband, Cornelius, and little Milo. The most dangerous to man is little Milo. Why? The time is 1973. The place is right here on Earth. How did they get here? What is their reception? Welcome, gentlemen, to the United States. Escape from the planet of the apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new. Astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. Zira, are you mad? Until we know who our friends are and who our enemies are. And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. The president convenes a special board of inquiry. Does the other one talk? Only when she lets me. (laughs) Embraced by our civilization, the nation gives them a hero's welcome. Address, please. To Zoom. Andy, uh, I feel like I was uh, I was listening to our show last week uh, beneath the Planet of the Apes, and I feel like I was unfairly cool on it, and so I want to recant briefly. <laughs> okay, I'm not that- sure I like the way that this show is starting with that, because that makes me worry about what you're about to say for this one. No, I, I, I maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to say that it was I I was not giving it enough credit because what I felt sort of steamrolled over by that movie that I just was just the retelling of Taylor's story from Planet of the Apes with a new actor. And I feel like I, I watched more of it this week. And uh, I don't know why I went back and watched it again, but I felt like I needed a little bit more <laughs> runway before I watched Escape from Planet of the Apes. And, and I get more of what you were talking about. And I just wanted you to know it is not an empty shell of a movie compared to the first one. You, you were right. That's all. That's what I wanted to say. You were more right than I gave you credit for but, in our well, a- actual recording that. session. Good, good. That's right. Now, in case you didn't get it, in metaphor, the metaphor of apes taking over the world and acting like humans, this movie brings apes to 1973 in a sort of Star Trek The Voyage Home kind of Planet of the Humans uh, film and really uh, decides to, to bring it home with humans suck. If you missed it, humans really, really suck. <laughs> and that's what we get to see in, in this movie is the suckitude of humanity. <laughs> we suck in whether we're in metaphor uh, 3000 years from now or in the present. Uh, ultimately, we suck. One way or another, there is suckage happening. There is I, suckage. I actually I would say that this film actually does a good job of balancing that a little bit. Not all humans suck. In fact, I think there are. I would think more non-sucky humans in this film than sucky humans. I agree um, with that. I think, though, the uh, the magnitude of the suckishness of one particular human tells the whole story. I think that this is trying to get across. This film is trying to get across. Don't you think? It is a big suck. It is a black hole of suck. He's like the Christopher Walken of the Dead Zone, and his name is <laughs> Doctor Otto. How did we not see that coming? I love Eric Braden so much. I think he's just the best. 
Yes, I may have watched The Young and the Restless a little too often when I was a child, yes. but I still love Eric Braden. And I'm right with you, man. <laughs> he's in. He's so good. Uh, and I love him. I, I think he's great. And actually, this is, I think, a really interesting film. It is full of problems. Like looking back at all of this stuff so many years away from when it was made, but listening to people talk about it, like listening to Don Taylor, the director, talking about it, he's just talking about well, you know, I have the script and it's it's probably the best script I've ever read in my career. And <laughs> just hearing him say things like that, I'm like, ah, I don't know if what if that's speaking highly of him or just <laughs> speaking to screenwriting at the time or what. But, uh, you know, I, I do give 20th Century Fox and actually uh, quite a bit of credit because this is really the first uh, the first time that a studio was doing big uh, sequels like this. It just didn't happen in this capacity unless it was um, really a, a much smaller sort of film or like a, a serial type of film like James Bond. But that was very much like nothing really connected necessarily between them. Oh, and this one connects heavily. This one does. And I, I appreciate that they really were trying to figure it out. And even though there are problems galore, and I, every time I watch this, all I can think of is Annie Wilkes screaming, you know, he never jumped out of the cocky duty car. That's, that's like always in my head when this movie starts because it's like we never see them escape the planet. It's exactly what she's going to break my ankles over one of these days, but still. <laughs> But I still love it. So there you go. Well, I, uh, I, we should say on that note, we do see them sort of, we sort of see them, although it's a little bit incomplete, in the original shooting script. Uh, they, they do the sequence pre-credits uh, where we see them take off and uh, it intercuts with the, f- the climax of the, the uh, beneath as we see the hand, bloody hand come down on the crystal thing in the Fortress of Solitude and the bomb <laughs> blows up and we see them watch the planet explode. Yes. And then they go back in time and they fall into the ocean. And that's what leads us to the credits as it stands. Oh, actually, they shot some of that even. I put a link to the recreation of it from uh, in YouTube. It it was not uh, there was nothing I don't think official about it. I'm not sure. It looks like a bunch of weird previs and uh, clips from other movies. But I thought it was an interesting rebuild. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, they they actually had started shooting that. um, But then they realized what they wanted to start the film with was uh, they thought that was a nice way to open it because it would have been a big surprise, but they thought what it would have been an even more interesting surprise is to start it the way that they did, where you have these astronauts arrive and the army comes to greet them and everything only to have them take their helmets off and reveal that they are in fact the apes. And that's, yeah. they, they decided that that was the, that was the surprise they wanted instead of the time traveling backward. Well, then I ask you the question, though, because I agree. I agree with them and I agree with you. That's a nice surprise. But don't you think it would have been something to have it maybe as a flashback or something to remind us where we came from and to give us a little bit more context? Yeah, absolutely. I, I kept thinking that because in, in my brain, I have seen that scene. And yeah. so every time I'm watching this, I feel like I'm waiting for that scene to come up. Oh, they're going to talk about it and we'll see it. And I always am surprised when it actually doesn't happen. So uh, absolutely. I, I think it would have been a nice scene to have. I'm guessing because of the budgetary cuts with the film that um, once they cut it, they decided to just not uh, go back to it and use that money on something else. Yeah. 
Well, I think uh, I, I may surprise you when I tell you that even in spite of all of the cockadoodie problems that y- you are talking about in this film, that I'm sure you will talk about more, this so far, uh, weirdly, is my favorite. <laughs> What's that it's all about, ver- do you think? It's a very fun movie. This one is one that I really love. It's not my favorite of the of the series, but I've always had a special place in my heart for this one. And I think it's <laughs> largely because I find the characters of Cornelius and Zira just so, so um, heartwarming in this. And I really just kind of completely fall for them especially kim hunter i think she's so good as zira in this as just this person kind of or this ape kind of connecting with um with humankind and uh just the way that she reacts to things and i'm just like i i just adore her and i think that it's it's just an incredibly well crafted character and, and she's um i mean after three movies or two and a half at least she's i think really kind of proven that she um uh really connects with this character what's funny about it though is it seems like don taylor and and to the same extent paul dean are are saying you know we're gonna go ahead and lean in on the campiness of of this thing we're gonna lean in on all the stuff that people have been saying about the other two movies and uh, you know hey it's just a movie that screams uh do you think beneath the planet of the apes was campy hold my beer like this movie (laughs) is all over the place it moves from uh this sort of grave drama to uh straight up sort of tv kind of sitcom boobery that whole second act where they're going clothing shopping and doing the little turns on the street as they kind of become cultural celebrities uh is just uh, crazy Uh, we get uh, all the way to extraordinary violence uh both and i would say extraordinary for the time the the weird uh neck breaking of of milo the the third chimp astronaut uh, by the contemporary gorilla uh, with all of the, the crazy animal screaming montage uh, uh, leads us into uh, just the uh, being surprised about extraordinary violence as it, as it happens on screen in a movie that otherwise wouldn't say it doesn't telegraph. We're going to get real, real violent now uh, to the very end of the movie, the climax of the movie uh, when we have the ultimate bleak, uh, fall of Cornelius and Zira. It's not a movie that is easy to predict, or even if you can predict it, you can't quite predict how they're going to do it. And I, I thought that was uh, uh, that makes it pretty special, in spite of any challenges I might have. Yeah, it really is. It's they they found a way to have fun with it. I, I think they really are acknowledging that this is. I mean, we're talking about talking apes here. It's pretty silly to begin with. And uh, and the whole idea of apes in contemporary clothes, like you said, when you see them in the outfits, it's just super silly. And, uh, you know, if I mean, imagine if the first Planet of the Apes had actually kind of gone with Pierre Boulle's original original vision or Rod Serling's original vision, where it was a contemporary ape society and they were walking around in these sorts of clothing it would have been so much harder to take seriously because, yeah. you know, you're like, wow, these these apes just don't look right in these suits. It would have been really, really weird. And so I, I think that they found a way to kind of acknowledge a lot of that campiness and the silliness of everything going on in this uh, series thus far, while also still acknowledging that, you know, this is a series that has always had um, more of a serious message. And there's kind of this social commentary that they're always 
delivering and this idea of the the fear of the unknown and i guess you could almost say it's kind of this biblical message of you you can look at at the, the the way that they're you know trying to save the baby either in like jesus terms or in moses terms um, you can find a way to kind of see it uh, through either of those eyes and it's it's kind of interesting to see it that way and acknowledge that uh, the creators of it knew all of this going into it and they just said let's have fun and you know there are going to be tonal shifts it's going to jump from really funny to really dark but we're going to always be enjoying it and we'll just stay true to the characters and let them take us through it how timely is this message of xenophobia in this movie too though right i mean uh, it, it, 1971 and it feels it, that story in particular feels as resonant to me as you know today the story of fear of outsiders of uh, in the same regard weirdly of mental health and by the end of the movie i'm i'm thinking all of these things we still have to resolve why is this guy why does he have a gun and why is he nuts and how did we not see him coming? These are issues that we're, we're still sort of dealing with, and I thought it was very strange and uh, appropriate that we see it on, in this weird, campy ape movie today, almost 50 years later. I think that's why some of these movies get away with these uh, social commentaries, because they're not, you know, I mean, you could argue they are blatantly wearing it on their sleeve, but they're doing it in this genre way that mm-hmm. is not, you, you could very easily argue, hey, we're just having fun with apes and people and get away with it. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's exactly uh, the sort of thing like with The Crucible and, and, and being written at the time uh, during the uh, McCarthy hearings and everything. It's, right. it, you know, it's, it's easy to say, no, I'm just writing about the Salem witch trials. But in fact, there's much greater context in there. Handmaid's Tale, and, right? I mean, yeah, right, same yeah. thing. Uh, but then you get these sequences where you have, for example, Dr. Otto uh, trying to explain the picture and then the artist in the painting and then the artist in the painting painting the artist in the painting uh, to the reporter. And I don't know why I laugh out loud at this. I've watched this sequence multiple times (laughs) and the reporter, his reaction is suitably baffled. He has no idea. And I love it so much because I can't, do you write that or did you just write Otto's script and hope that you would write it in such a way that the, that he would be completely completely bamboozled by what's coming out of this other actor's face i loved it so much Uh, it was it was priceless i just i i I wonder why is this sort of reporting not on tv more exactly exactly (laughs) let me explain it to you this way bring out the painting It's totally irrelevant to what we're talking about. This is the kind of news I want to see on the air these days, Andy. This is what I feel like we're missing in local broadcast news. And we can do better. We shall do better. Local. Let's do national. National news. That's right. We need more fine art trying to and and more experts trying to explain fine art in a way to tie to to these national issues. This is going to make the world better. We have to do this. I love it. <laughs> Do you remember when getting a pregnant lady drunk and smoking in front of her was cool? <laughs> I mean, oh, so funny. What? Yeah, it. I mean, it speaks to the seventies, right? I mean, this this is pretty much the way life was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when doctors would smoke while they were, you know, checking pregnant women out. To to his credit, at least he he did stop after he turned on his recorder. Uh, so he let her drink <laughs> the the champagne, but he he did 
you know, stop smoking. I thought that was that was good. Uh, but I, I think this is another one that goes to these sequences, the, the mad pendulum swing of, of the tone of this film, because this leads us into this horrifying sequence of the of, you know, Zira uh, being uh, juiced up on sodium pentothal and having her recount in her drugged state uh, her, you know, dissecting human subjects. It's interesting how they kind of go through these things. And, uh, you know, I mean, they allow her to play it like a scientist. And she's just talking like somebody who's exploring and learning uh, about these beings, the, this life form on her planet, just like we would if, uh, you know, yeah. a, zo- a zoologist was dissecting a, a, a panther or something, you know, or a, a chimpanzee. It, it's very much the same. And so, I, I think it's it's so interesting to it's almost like hearing it from the animal's perspective, you know, when we're dissecting those animals. It's like, oh wow, I've never put it into that uh, mind frame before. But it is it is a little disturbing when you hear it that way. The harder thing is, I think, just because we like her so much, right? I mean, everybody else, even Cornelius, he's just kind of preposterously pompous, and you can kind of say, yeah, I, I get it. He's he's nice. I really like him. I like his voice, but but she's the one I'm really connecting with, and and I think it's a it is a bold choice to make her the one that's drugged, right? She is the most sympathetic character, and she's the one that we get to see, uh, sort of. Uh, you know, treated this way and that she, you know, through her language here, through this little speech that we get from her, we get to see that she is, you know, she's the dark one, right? She has this, from our perspective, she's the one that has this sort of, that had the hard job and clearly no remorse for it because it was that cool sort of scientific approach. And I, I think that makes it just a really bold choice as a screenwriter to to put her in that perspective it could just as easily have been Cornelius. Yeah, really, really. Another pivot uh, for me that I love so much is when we meet Armando, Ricardo Montalban's Armando, as they attempt to hide Cornelius and Zira uh, at the church. Were you surprised he came out of that uh, train car with a shirt on? <laughs> I, I, you know, he clearly wasn't working out yet. No, no. He had <laughs> not quite started developing the insanely uh, bronzed, buffed chest yeah. that he has <laughs> in uh, a, a decade from here. <laughs> it was so great to see him in this. And this is, again, this third act really pivots and it gets much more intense and it gets more violent and it gets more, uh, uh, you know, as Cornelius and Zira are going into hiding and they're, they're on the run they go to this old shipyard uh and uh you know uh, ultimately we get to the the final shootout what i really appreciate and i mean you've you've already talked about the tonal shifts but i find it so interesting that uh, it, it ends up hitting so well i think the shootout is something that just it it is incredibly effective the fact that Otto is so gung-ho on stopping uh, this proliferation of these apes um, so that he can protect the the future Earth 2,000 years uh, from this point uh, that, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying when he first shoots Zira and then guns down a baby. I mean, it's really incredibly shocking that it happens that way. And even when, uh, when 
um, Cornelius gets shot, seeing him get that kind of like that guttural growl that he kind of is yeah. having as he's starting to die before he has that horrifying fall, uh, or at least his dummy does, um, and, and hits the deck. And, uh, it's just, it's really brutal. And I appreciate that they made this such a, uh, a horrifying ending because it just, it, it takes all that joy that you had. And I think that's one of the strengths of, of having so much joy in the first part of the film, because by the time you get here, you're so connected with these characters that it really is just a heartbreak to, to die. I just find it an incredibly effective uh, shootout. And the final fall when Zira takes the now murdered baby, the bundle of, oh, of yeah. you know, blankets and the murdered baby and throws it into the ocean before she goes and collapses on top of Cornelius. And, and of course, that's the that's the first telegraph we get that there is a twist uh, at right. work. Did you do you do you have any recollection the first time you saw it? Did you see the twist coming? Oh, I saw this at too young of age to see yeah. twists coming. I yeah. would never have, I would never have noticed uh, or expected it. And so for me, the big twist was when you get into that uh, that last shot and you see the baby. Yeah. So, yeah. what about you? Was it obvious or was it a surprise still? Well, you know, I found myself. Um, I it was it was not a surprise, but it was it, I enjoyed it right because this is of course the introduction of this series time loop, and I couldn't find. Uh, where we go to the final shot and the baby is leaning back and forth and it turns out here that Zira had swapped the babies, her super intelligent future baby ape with uh, Eloise's non, uh, her, her dumb contemporary ape and it was the dumb contemporary ape that got shot. Also right. very, very sad. Yeah, um, yes, very. But not as sad when we see that, in fact, the ape that is left with Armando can say, Mama, Mama, Mama. And you end up this sort of, this is the only, like, dead <laughs> ape face that we get. <laughs> like, I think they used the right masks on our three major apes here. And they saved a ton of dough at, in not having to create all these, you know, ape and gorilla costumes that they did in the last movie, clearly. But then we get the, the dead-faced uh, baby Milo. That's uh, a real back and ape. That's a real chimp. It is not. It is a real chimp. And it what looks they do, so. It is not. No. What it is? It's a real chimp. And what they do is they take a movement of the chimp, um, and they they loop it so it's going forward, backward, forward, backward, forward, oh, backward right. to get it to say "mama." And that's uh, that's how it's actually doing the move. <laughs> but it's a real chimp. It is the ugliest chimp I've ever seen. <laughs> I was totally convinced it was a fake. <laughs> I mean, I got the fact that it was looped, but I thought, wow, that's uh, that doesn't look right. Uh, it just doesn't look right. I was played. Well, they, I played they, myself. <laughs> they even put makeup on it to 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 make the skin <laughs> different looking to make it, I, I guess, more like the. Uh, the costume ape faces. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that is what that must have been. <laughs> what got me <laughs> so funny uh, that is very funny well uh that was the big twist i will tell you i watched it with my son who at this point in the movie was totally shocked by the the shootout uh but his face lit up when uh you know when he saw that that baby was was the smart baby, uh, and immediately had to watch the beginning of the following movie, which we'll talk about next week. And right. his life was changed 
when he got that little spoiler. Oh. Uh, so as, as he sees the time loop. So there is, I, I guess I say all that because I think there really is uh, still joy to be had in the, the twists at the end. And this one felt more akin to Serling's legacy of twists at the end uh, than I got out of the last movie. I found it more rewarding. Yeah, I think the last movie's twist is just, wow, they went there. It's that sort of twist. Like, I didn't expect them to blow the whole planet up, but there it is. I think that was more of that Paul Dane, uh, you know, really grim nursery rhyme sort of ending. This one does feel very much more like the Rod Serling twist where uh, that's that is that um, opportunity to really shift things in a direction that you really didn't see coming. What was so great about that is this movie now on the heels of of the last one, I have growing confidence in Paul Dane's uh, work as a screenwriter. And even as weird as this one gets, as just sort of off its rocker gets, I have a lot of fun with it, but I have great confidence in him being able to piece together some really crazy uh, you know, open wounds in the narrative. Like he, like this, this is a sequel that by all rights had very few, um, you know, opportunities to make, to, to sort of normalize into canon after the entire world was blown up. But he makes it work and it introduces this time loop that, um, that I, I think is a first at the series level. At this point, I'm not sure. I couldn't get any. I, I have. I read a uh, a critic who wrote that, but it was unsighted. So I hmm. don't know if that's true. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, we'll say it was an early example of a series wide, uh, you know, sort of time looping mechanism happening here, and I think it does it actually really effectively. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about it is it creates this. Uh, this again, it's it's a way to kind of retcon it because from the first film, you can very easily assume, okay, humans screw things up, nuclear war, apes somehow are affected, they grow speech, uh, humans grow dumb over two thousand years, and that's it's because of the the nuclear uh, fallout or the radiation right. or something that cr- kind of creates this this evolution in these beings. Whereas now it's like, okay, so now they've gone back. And by depositing one of the actual future apes into our present, in uh, the 1973 present, that actually is where the apes start uh, start talking. And that's the development from that point forward. And for me, it works. I know that uh, there are many for whom it does not. But for me, I have a lot of fun with that. I, yeah, I have a great time with it. You know, it's interesting. By the time we get to the most recent trilogy... Um, I do feel that they shifted it in a way where, I, I mean, inevitably they were kind of doing a restart while at the same time kind of allowing it to be a continuing <laughs> journey of it. So it's a little confusing because in the first film, in Dawn, you do have a little news story in the background about the ship having taken off and all that that Taylor was on. Um, so obviously it doesn't completely uh, line up, but uh, but you know what? It's okay. I think in the world of time loops, and as Doc Brown explained it, multiple uh, paths for all the different futures. It's fine. They're all different futures. And uh, and we learned in Star Trek uh, reboot as well. So Yeah, right. You know, I will say, as far as all that goes, it's. I, I think that it's a little um, confusing for... I don't think confusing is the right word, but frustrating in the world of retcon, I guess, that 
in this particular film, Cornelius is all of a sudden given this entire bit of secret ape history that he clearly has known for a while, but decided to never tell anybody up to this point about how, you know, <laughs> the the horrible story about uh, dogs and, and how they had to have dog bonfires <laughs> and all that and, and how they had uh, humans started having apes for pets and how... Yes. Uh, kind of the rise of uh, the apes and Aldo, the first ape to speak, and all of this. It's like, why? How, is, he knew that humans could speak. Why didn't he say any of this back in the first film? It's, right. it's, a, or, it's a, or dare I say, the second. Like we've oh, had right. plenty of opportunity for him to come clean <laughs> that he's actually the keeper of a lost scroll. Right? It's like Commandments right. eleven through fifteen. <laughs> he knows more than he's letting on. <laughs> <laughs> It is such a strange uh, bit of history that they decided to throw in. And it frustrates me. But, you know, I get it. They're trying to find ways to kind of paint paint this broader story. Um, and it, I think it would have made more sense if Milo was the one who spilled all this before he was killed. So that at least we heard it somehow. We could have gone, oh, he's the one who knew. And, and that's why Cornelius didn't know in these previous films. Especially because Milo has already monologued for us. Yeah, right. Like, exactly. it was a perfect opportunity for him to do it. Well, clearly, Sal Minio um, wanted out of the movie because <laughs> he got killed <laughs> off right away. And, I mean, really, he hated he hated being in the makeup. He thought he was so claustrophobic in it. He's like, I, I need to, you know, be done. And so, I, I, my understanding is that's why he died so early on. You wonder if there was, like, more script for Sal Minio. And, and he was just like, you know, I'm talking to the guerrilla actor saying when i get close here i don't care what i'm saying i want you to kill me <laughs> so just you just do it just threw in the towel <laughs> in the middle of page two of nine <laughs> but there are frustrating things like that you know the fact that this whole history was retconned that all of a sudden um we were thrust into our understanding of this story um likewise uh it's so frustrating to me that all of these people keep asking um, Zira and Cornelius about Taylor and and uh, and his crew and stuff, but nobody asks about Brent or the second spaceship. <laughs> Did you happen to see a second ship land? <laughs> they didn't even know he left. He just stole it. As far as well, we and know, like, well, I like the army. Well, you know, what of our missing ships? It's like well, they thought it was missing. Right. Do, does this ANSA? I mean, maybe it is NASA, and this is how bad they are. They don't even know how to spell NASA. That's <laughs> that's where the problem is all started from. But see, the problem is you just said it. One of our missing ships, Andy. The implication is they've lost them all. Like all we get to see is two. There are like fifty ships floating through space. I have to wonder, Pete. Is this the first time that we've had a news from around the world montage? <laughs> I'm assuming there there have been other ones before this, uh, but it, it's like this one. And then I know that Airplane does a great job of kind of spoofing it um, uh, almost a decade after this. But it's like one of these great uh, cliches that I think is just it's such a funny thing when you see news from around the world and you see the Japanese family sitting down watching the news. And uh, <laughs> it's great. Right. That's right. Because I and I was looking up uh, right before we started recording, I was looking up other news montages. And the only ones I could find were uh, they were they were news montages, but they were all told in sort of uh, news of the world like war recaps, you know, 
Uh, I'm thinking specifically about the opening credits to Casablanca. You know, after the credit roll, we have the, oh. you know, here's what's going on in Paris. And now we're right, going right. down to Morocco. And, you know, uh, talking about that. But it wasn't that same, like, on-camera uh, reporters in different languages doing their thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, what's, I, is, not, I don't remember. I think it's Airplane, where you cut to some place and they're, like, just banging on the drums. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> is it Airplane or Airplane 2? I oh, can't remember. Right. You're right. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. The Austin Powers movies might have done some of that, too. I, yeah. I, I can't quite remember. I just know it became something that was clearly a spoof for, for spoof movies to do. Well, it's low-hanging fruit. Just is, like but... just like watching the apes try to eat their oranges on a plate with silverware. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good goof. Uh, Isn't that how you eat oranges, Pete? Every day. <laughs> every day. So I, I do want to say something. So go, jumping back to the history real quick. So we have this story that Cornelius relays to us about the this ape history and this ape Aldo who was a pet, and Aldo said no and was the first ape to say no. Uh, one note is first, I think that I really enjoy that they actually reference that in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes by having Caesar, um, you know, scream no at the, at the. Uh, I don't know, they're not zookeepers, they're just kind of, uh, uh, what, what were well, uh, they were those guys? They were, yeah, they were wards? Like, yeah, wards, <laughs> that's a better way to put it, for the ape prison. Yeah, for the little ape prison that yeah. they're in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I and I I think it's going to be um, this will be uh, good for us to kind of keep tabs on this as we progress with uh, with the series into especially the next film um, to to look at how the history uh, is going to kind of repeat itself I guess you could say because technically I guess in a time loop the the future or the past that that cornelius is referencing is no longer going to be the past now because now they are here and they're creating a new past for the future apes um so as far as we know maybe this yeah, is how keep, it happened the first time it, right exactly and i keep saying dawn um but it's rise of the planet of the apes that i mean yeah i just the, those movies are are uh they they stole each other's uh titles and so that's why i always yeah that get that confused How'd they get, how'd they get it made? You want to talk about, uh, you want to talk about that? This was, uh, you know, uh, they had kind of come up with this whole sequel thing and were realizing that they had something with this. And so before this, uh, before Beneath the Planet of the Apes was released, Fox was like, well, let's get a next one ready. And uh, they were like, well, we kind of wrote ourselves into a corner with this ending and so they they charged Paul Dane with the the task of coming up with this script, and I think that he did. And again, with a really low budget, and I think he did a commendable job of finding a way to retcon the story and and create this this thing where Doctor Milo uh, dredges the lake and pulls Taylor's ship out of there, and they fix it and take off. And I think uh, I think that it worked, and I. I, uh, again, Fox was going through the, the hard times and, and trying to, you know, get all of its money back still from the, the rough patch that it had had. And so with these sequels, they found that, Hey, if we spend very little money on it, 
we will still make uh, a handsome profit. And um, it's it's not necessarily going to be as much as the previous ones, but we still will make money from it. And that's kind of what they did with this one. And, and they really kind of rushed this into production as quickly as they could, um, even though they, they didn't have any of the people. But they knew, hey, if we can move forward with Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter as the as the core team in this one, they're loved enough from the previous two that people will go right along with this one. And it worked. When you look at Paul Dane and what he did here, there's this wonderful quote, and I'm sure we'll we'll dig it up next week, uh, where he talks about uh, this wheel of time that he created for writing these things, where this wheel of continuity, because he wasn't sure about you know whether or not a next film would be greenlit, he just made sure to write to this wheel of continuity so that wherever he stopped, you could conceivably make that the beginning of the time loop so that the time loop would work no matter if we get to uh, conquest or, you know, we, or not. Uh, and I, I thought that was, that was fascinating, uh, the, how proud he was of, uh, of the continuity that he had built for this sequence of movies from here on out. Uh, which I didn't necessarily get the feeling after they blew up the planet that that he they were going to be sort of you know gifted with such foresight. No, but they are by the time they get to the end of this film. Yes, because clearly they're setting this up for the next film. Absolutely, and I think that's that's so great, right? I mean, that's so great that they they're actually planning now. I feel like for me watching this movie, it feels like the series gets started. Yeah, it does kind of feel that way. Uh, you know, the beneath it felt like. The the ugly redheaded stepchild. They're like, well, I don't know. Let's just do something. Hey, let's go underground. Um, but now it feels like they they've found a way by going back in time and bringing this um, baby ape into the the story. That hey, we can kind of create this whole planet of the apes now, and it gives them an opportunity to explore. And it is going to be fun to see where it goes in the next couple films. Anybody? I mean, we've talked now that we're into the third movie. Anybody in particular that you want to talk about in the cast that we we haven't mentioned? I, I we talked about Natalie Trundy last week. She was one of our underground dwellers, and you know she was fine. She didn't have a very big role. Um, she's got a really interesting look though, and I I do like that in that film. She was Albina or Albina, um, and. Uh, here she, I think, is wonderful as the the doctor, Doctor Branton, uh, working with uh, Doctor Dixon, Bradford Dillman. That couple uh, of humans that are working with our ape pair, I think, do such a great job together, and I I love just the way they carry themselves and uh, just the their performances opposite Eric Braden, um, just all the way the way that everything plays out. I think it's a lot of fun. I think that they know that. Like when they're doing the the Senate hearing, it's obviously not taken as seriously as it would be in reality. You know, it's very much kind of a genre version of a Senate hearing. I mean, John Randolph's always great. Um, but as a chairman with this, it, it really is kind of this circus sort of thing. And with, with uh, Bradford Dillman and Natalie Trundy kind of smiling and, and, and laughing behind them as Cornelius and Zira are answering questions and kissing and giggling and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's, it's done for the genre, and I think they're clearly having fun with it. And that's okay. I think in context of what they're doing there, it works just fine. 
I do too. There are other moments, you know, not just in the hearing. And you're right, John Randolph was really, really fun to see. Uh, sequences where we have our our good friend of the show, uh, who doesn't know we exist yet, M. Emmett Walsh, as the aide. And they're talking. He's talking <laughs> with the the uh, the general, and uh, you know they're talking about uh, that the the apes are you know they brought their own clothes in their luggage. I think that is one of those priceless goofy TV moments. It is <laughs> just fantastic, right out of Bewitched, you know. And, and then later, after the the very news report of Doctor Otto talking to the befuddled newscaster, she, he says good night, and Zira says good night, and they all look at each <laughs> other and take a beat. And then do the perfect TV sitcom laugh, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like was, even Zero's laughing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like it was just it. It's just too good. No, it's it's a fun cast, and I think everybody's having a good time with it. So not necessarily to the credit of, of Joseph Birock uh, behind the camera, certainly to Marion Rothman. Uh, for editing we have a couple of those montages i would say not quite as uh, this movie doesn't really celebrate the overarching kind of weird cutting that we had in the first two movies in some of those weird sequences but there are a couple in this film one in particular the death of milo that uh that reeks of animal experimentation I marvel every time he dies that every animal in the zoo apparently is is completely affected. It's like the end of all things when Milo dies. It, that montage of all the animals in the zoo just basically going crazy is so strange to me, um, but uh, weirdly effective. <laughs> it's because they all have the midichlorians. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's right. What it is. It's the midichlorians. Oh. You didn't That's know that. Yeah, there's a disturbance in the force. <laughs> mm. Can we talk about your friend Jerry Goldsmith? Ah, uh, Jerry. Man, this this goes from West Side Story to uh, a crazy psychedelic funk. This score, crazy. There, there is some crazy '70s jams going on here. Um, he's definitely having a fun time. I love that he gets that weird downward sliding tone in there sometimes that yeah with with the kind of later in the film with kind of the apes and uh, you know he's he's a a composer who loves playing and yes the music feels a little dated in this but it's taking place in 73 and it's supposed to kind of have that vibe so i think i I think he does a, a great job with it I think he does too. I, this is really fun. Um, in so far as I'm jumping around from Sondheim to George Clinton, I mean, I, I it is it pulls from everywhere, uh, and it really adds to the just comical bouncing around of tonality we have in the movie. I think it really uh, accentuates the film. It, it's a great partner. We got to talk about Don Taylor, Andy. He is a definitely. A TV director. His career is full of TV. There are a few features in there, but very few. When you look at the um, the percentage of his body of work that is done in television, uh, both TV shows and TV movies, um, it's the. I mean, that's the bulk of it. Yeah. And this is one of the few um, films that he did direct. But I think it speaks to the fact that again. A very low budget. Hey, let's get a TV director to come in and use his TV budgetary skills to make this work. And uh, to that end, I think he does a, does an effective job. 
Where did you stand on the 77 uh, Burt Lancaster, Michael York version of Dr. Moreau, Island of Dr. Moreau? I've never seen it. I've only seen the uh, crazy one with Brando and Kilmer. Okay. Well, that that it, I had completely, you know, skipped the note that Don Taylor directed. This was one of the few that he did. I'd never seen Damien the Omen 2, another one of his. Um, uh, these, these movies that jump out of his uh, catalog really surprise me. Um, you know, the final countdown with Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen. What's he doing doing that movie in his catalog of massive TV credits? Uh, it's really funny selection of films. And then he had acted too, like popping up in things like Stalag 17. So, yeah, right. But generally, I liked it. I think he did a uh, I think he did a great job uh, w- with this movie and delivered something that was new to the series. Yeah, I agree. Problems and all warts and all. I'm a fan. Yeah, I agree. How to do an award season, Andy? This is that franchise. This is that that period in history when the genre films were not really uh, <laughs> drawing attention, one would say. So uh, nothing again, just like last week. This is our second back to back, our second film in the history of this show where we have no awards. We'll <laughs> see how it uh, fares these next two. It might it might end up a four streak. Well, how did we do uh, at the box office? Fox was still working in recovery mode, and the cheap sequel still makes tons of money plan seems to be working well for them. So they went even cheaper with this latest installment, assuming it would result in an even higher net profit. Don Taylor only got two and a half million to play with, uh, half a million less than the last film, which is 14.8 million in today's dollars. The movie opened on May 21st, 1971, and did exactly as the Fox execs had hoped. It became a hit. The movie earned $12.3 million at the box office, or $73.4 million in today's dollars. That left the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of nearly $600,000. Not as profitable as either of the first two, but still proof for the broke studio that their plan was working. How about that? I know. Andy, I'm I'm relieved that we finally made it to this movie, uh, because I had a great time with it, and... Uh, even though it's not, <laughs> spoiler, it's not a five-star movie for me, uh, it is still a movie that I quite enjoyed, and uh, I, I surprised myself. It was not a boring film. Well, I think it's funny that you showed your daughter the first one and your son the third one. <laughs> she, <laughs> At I some know. point, she wasn't even around. I need her to see this movie because this was the one. You know, she she was not eager to visit it again after after the whole special kind of boring that the first movie was for her. So uh, I, I need to con her back into this. And maybe these three, I'll just uh, do a little, uh, you know, we'll just watch them all uh, next weekend or something and just knock them out. Because I think th- I think there's stuff to like in, in this movie that would appeal even to her. Ah, just do all five, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's time for us to rank it, Andy. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see the list of all the movies we've talked about on this series i don't know is this going to be our new number one well we'll have to find out uh at flickchart.com slash the next reel or you can swipe over in your show notes tap flickchart and it'll take you to this very film where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours all right first up escape from the planet of the apes or fat city escape from planet of the apes escape from the planet of the apes for me escape from the planet of the apes or time crimes Oof. Oh man! Well, I'm I'm time crimes. I am too. I feel guilty about that, but uh, but that's uh, okay. Yeah, I don't think you should feel guilty. Escape from the Planet of the Apes or Sympathy for Mister Vengeance. 
Escape for me. Yeah, escape for me, please. Escape from the Planet of the Apes or The Wizard of Oz. Oh, I have to go The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> do you? I do. Yeah. All right, me too. Let's do it. Escape from the Planet of the Apes or Rebel Without a Cause. Ooh, Salminio. Yeah, I'm I'm going to go for Sal's performance uh, and go with Rebel. I'm going uh, with Escape from the Planet of the Apes. You are? I'm yep. not going to fight you on it. So you're throwing in the towel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're not going to do a knife fight? No. <laughs> You just gotta, just gotta nick him. You just gotta nick him, Pete. You just gotta nick him. <laughs> I didn't know it came to that at the end of rock uh, paper hey. scissors. You just stab After the guy. Two thousand one. This yeah. is this is where we go. <laughs> Escape from the Planet of the Apes or Das Boot. Das Boot. A Das Boot, absolutely. Escape from the Planet of the Apes or Wild Tales. Oh, that's a fun one. Yeah, I'm probably Wild Tales. I I'm a little torn on this one, but I think I will say Wild Tales also. Yeah. Escape from the Planet of the Apes or Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, I gotta go with Glenn Gary. Escape from the Planet of the Apes or Interstellar. <laughs> I am Interstellar. They at least keep track of their ships. <laughs> but not their bookcases, Pete. Not their bookcases. <laughs> they didn't know all the bookcases were in space everybody's sitting around on earth with all these books on the floor (laughs) oh man until recently i would never have put interstellar over escape but um i that's a film i'm really glad that i revisited i will go with interstellar all right that puts escape from the planet of the apes on our chart at 125 125 out of 366 films that's pretty good that That you know i'm pretty impressed so I'm pretty impressed with this rise, yeah. Uh, do you happen to... This is a terrible question for me to ask you right now. Do you happen to know where this falls in our Apes series? Can you bring up the... Because it is listed as a series on Flickchart. Yes. How does this rank for us so far? So far, this is second on our chart. We have Planet of the Apes at 97, Escape at 125, and Beneath at 250. See, that feels about right to me, but I know, I, I don't know. I mean, does that does that feel okay to you? That's the order, uh, that's my order of preference that I uh, list okay. these three. Okay, all right. And that's also how we rank them, We that's Kismet. That is ranking Kismet. It is, it okay. is. Okay, all right. Uh, so where does this put this for you on letterbox.com slash the next reel? This film I I do have problems with, but again, this is one I watched an awful lot as a as a youth, and it really has a special place in my heart. So a three and a half is where I land with this one, with um, a big old heart full of love. Yes, sir, Andy, I am right with you. Three and a half with a heart. Look at that! Excellent, I we, love it. We found one another. Ships in a storm. <laughs> We've returned to port. There we are. That's awesome. Where do we go from here? We are jumping to the fourth of this uh, series of apes films. We're going to be looking at Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, Ricardo. Yes, he returns. Roddy McDowell will return. Uh, Natalie Trundy will return. It's going to be a, uh, a fun one to dig into. I really enjoy Conquest. Can't, look, can't wait to talk about it. I, too, am excited about this one. 
And if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies too. If you support us at different levels, just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe for free to the show and your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram, Ben Lott running Twitter, and of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, you know, there weren't sure weren't very many one stars. No, no. So it, there it, was it one. Makes me feel good. Warms the heart a bit. Yeah, yeah. The cockles. <laughs> Warm cockles of your heart. Uh, I have a, I have a two star for you, and I'm going to go ahead and open it up. I'll open Let's up the bidding it. at two stars with heebie-jeebies. <laughs> This movie gave me the heebie-jeebies. I had to stop watching it. It is totally predictable and a classic plot. The evolved chimpanzees get hurled back in time through a space-time continuum after an explosion. Humans think they're from a different planet. The chimpanzees are not accepted as colleagues and spend the rest of the movie building credibility while one or two humans acknowledge them and the masses reject them. Blah, blah, blah. Wah, wah. Well, one, I feel like that person didn't really <laughs> pay attention Yeah. Uh, anyway, but you know, it does bring up an interesting point and it, it makes me wonder at the very start of this film, when we have our two doctors go in to see, uh, to see the apes, uh, to see our three chimpanzees, um, they are treating them like they are real chimpanzees and they're doing these tests and everything. Do, are we meant to believe that, that Zira, Cornelius and Milo um, are supposed to look like an actual chimpanzee <laughs> and not an evolved chimpanzee, or are they are are people just dumb and they think that these <laughs> these beings that look like human uh, chimpanzee hybrids are actually well, are actually chimps? Well, I'm very <laughs> like no one at any time thought maybe during the can you fit the the round shape into the round <laughs> hole test. How did they button their pants that they're wearing? <laughs> you're right. You're right. That's a oh. that's an important note. Important is, note. That was the stupidest test I have ever seen. <laughs> so like, let's see if she'll get this banana off the string. Yes. <laughs> well, I've got a, oh, a two star by your mom. I don't know if you knew that your mom is writing reviews. Well, on suddenly Amazon she's quite now, active <laughs> online. Here she is. Who says WTF? She doesn't say that. What does WTF mean, Gary? <laughs> anyway, your mom says, really, really weird. I thought the second one had a bad ending, but at least I could finish it. This one was unfinishable. <laughs> Apparently, well, too bad. your mom doesn't like the 70s weirdness. <laughs> that's too bad. It is too bad. Oh. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. Uh, now I got to go watch The World's End. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> 
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.